0: Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. I have been following the career of Belgian fashion designer Olivier Thyskins pretty much from the beginning. I have seen him grow from a wonderkin whose dark, goth-like gowns were being worn by the likes of Madonna to the Oscars when he was just 21 years old, into the established and well-respected artist he is today. A designer who has come up with a signature style of dark romantic ensembles that are formed from a rigorous attention to construction, precise tailoring, and meticulous fabric choices. Olivier has never been one to bend to the ebb and flow of fashion. Instead, his work stands like beautiful sartorial rocks, which the world of fashion crashes up against but never erodes away. His singular vision can be felt in each professional chapter of his career. During his years as the artistic director at Rochas, he single-handedly came up with intriguing new silhouettes for the house, shapes that instantly put the brand back on the fashion map and garnered him the title of Best International Designer by the CFDA in 2006. Then as the artistic director of Nina Ricci, he developed even further his feminine yet sensual aesthetic, creating sculptural dresses and statement suiting. Next up was a stint in America, where the designer's couture talents were put to great use in the world of contemporary fashion, as Olivier teamed up with the brand Theory to become its artistic director, elevating the label's global profile and also injecting its offering with a sartorial sophistication. But the call of his inner voice to relaunch his own label eventually became too strong for Olivier to ignore any longer, and in 2016 he returned to Paris to relaunch his fashion house. Over the past four years, Olivier has methodically and systematically grown his company, taking his time to be strategic about his choices and focusing on once again giving voice to his unique and uncompromising vision. A vision that is so singular that he is one of the youngest designers in the industry to have already had not one, but two retrospectives of his work put on display. With all of the groundwork laid out for his own brand success, this past February, Olivia also took on the role of artistic director at Arzaro, a fashion house with over 50 years of archives for the designer to wade through before presenting his first collection of couture and ready-to-wear pieces during the Paris Haute Couture presentations in June. I spoke with Olivier via Zoom video about his impressive career, how he will balance the workload between his two brands that he now oversees, and how he plans on presenting his debut work for Zaro now that the Haute Couture shows have been canceled in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. What is clear is that this is one designer who is looking to the future with a cool head and an open heart. So Olivier, thank you so much for doing this. I know we had to reschedule and I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: My pleasure, really.:
0: um, I want to go back to the beginning a little bit with you, um, you know, get uh, those first inklings in your mind's eye when you realized you wanted to work in fashion. I believe it was quite young. I, I've heard, I've read that it was like you were seven or eight when you first wanted to be a designer.
1: Well, actually, I was just I think it's so far back, that I don't really remember my first fashion memories. It is that that far. I think I was obsessed immediately by women wearing dresses, by the fabric, by the look of men in beautiful attire. And as far as you go back to my first sketches as a child, it was immediately, you know, costumes and dresses. And and actually, I I was drawing a lot of fashion silhouettes without really knowing it was a fashion drawing or a fashion sketch. And it's one day that an adult told me, oh, you're going to be a couturier or you could do this as a job. But I understood that. And so by age seven, I was saying all the time that I was going to be a couturier.
0: Well, you called it. Um, I was really surprised in doing some research on you that when you you went to one of the most prestigious um, fashion schools, uh, La Compe. Yeah, am I pronouncing that right? Um, yeah, yeah. And... And then you didn't graduate. You left, you know, through your studies to start your own label. What gave you the, the, the balls, let's say, to, to decide I'm going to leave and go and launch my own line now? What happened in your mind's eye that you're just like, let's do this?
1: I don't know what actually happened. It's strange. I, I think I, I follow strongly my instincts. There was something is that, I mean, I was pretty young. I was 19. And there was something everything was going very well at school, but uh I, I was a little bit like bitter, slightly angry. I had like a lot of stress financially for these collections, and I was very stressed to ask help from my parents mm-hmm. to do student collections. And uh I know that I came back at school early January and something went off with a professor because there was like Potential sponsoring using like uh, alcohol brands for helping me, and they were not for it. There was something weird happening, and I decided to never go back uh, and I just left.
0: And so, you immediately launched your, your own label, which already started generating buzz. And then, what uh, not even a year later, I think you were 21, and oh, there, all of a sudden, there's Madonna at the height of her career wearing your piece not just wearing your piece, but also wearing it to the Academy Awards, the Oscars. I mean. This is before social media. This is before internet, where you could, you know, DM a, a top stylist and get your stuff on a on a on a you know a celebrity. How did your life change yeah. at that moment? I mean, that that was radical.
1: It's very organic. Uh, it's very organic. Actually, while I was at school, I was already helping with stylings, assisting on photo shoots or. And I, I did an I was an assistant, a dresser assistant on a show that was on the coast of Belgium. And I think I was assistant to the D Squares, Dean and Dan. Oh wow. And uh, I was assisting for dressing up the boys. And then uh the year later, this was happening again, and it was the year I left school, and so I I had been making clothes at home and everything. And I, the guy who was producing this event was uh, Etienne Rousseau, who's like Villa Eugénie. They, they're working a lot, still in fashion for very important shows today. But at the time he was mostly working in Belgium and he was already doing the Driven Open shows in Paris. And I visited him and showed him my clothes with a model friend. And he was okay to put me in the show. Then I got, at the time, Cookie Salvert, who was a PR, famous PR in Paris, who spots my collection and said that, I, I can present your collection for, the, for free. Just bring the clothes to Paris, and I put them in my showroom. It just started so organically. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And, but what was it like that moment when, when you s- discovered Madonna was wearing your piece? Did you know she was going to be wearing it to the Oscars?
1: I didn't know, but actually she wore some of the things I did before that. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually it's on my birthday on January 4th that I received a fax from Inez Lam Lamseuert and Vinut Matadin. And they were requesting clothes for a shoot styled by Ariane Phillips on Madonna. And I received these fax. I still have the fax. Wow. It's on my birthday. And I sent them the clothes. And so she she started wearing some of them, using them in photo shoots, and, photo shoots and wearing them for the launch of her then a new album. And um, no, that was very, very helpful for me. But many of the, of everything was helpful. I think still today for a person who's starting, everything is helpful. But at the time, I also had Isabella Blow mm-hmm. who, picked some clothes and put them in, on, on the cover of, uh, of uh, the Sunday Times, the, the, the Sunday edition where you have like a fashion ad. I got uh, Karina Jivargisov who did an article in The Face magazine and I was still like, I wasn't yet a designer sort of. And some of these people, they did amazing for me because everybody was reading The Face magazine or looking at the styling from this person and like paying attention to the new names and
0: yeah you had i mean you definitely but i think that you know real creatives when they see great talent and i'm not just doing this because i know you and you trying to be nice but when you see great talent you want to support that great talent and you were pretty much in the late 90s and the early 2000s like the it designer coming up and coming designer and you were yet and you were so young at that time still how did you deal with the pressure of being the, the hot young designer at, at that time when you were so you know early in your career?
1: Well, I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware. I, I think, I mean, my friends probably would joke about it, but I, I, I can be a little bit naive. And when I started. I was more serious about the way my pants were cut and if I was right with my jacket. It was I left school early, so it was al- almost like learning mm-hmm. while doing the collections, and I was very focused on that. And I was living in Brussels, which was like far from a- any like strassy or, or I was barely in Paris, and so I, w- I wasn't really aware of that. But I was also I was kind of aware of the effect I was generating when we were doing the show and I was seeing and. Uh, and I've, I was very happy and something that struck me was the day that uh, Elsa Clench. Ah,
0: yes. Was <laughs> like,
1: I was I was fan of Elsa Clench when I was a young teenager because I was always looking at CNN style on CNN with Elsa Clench. And when Elsa Clench came to the to show, I think it was the second, this struck me. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. there was Elsa Clench, Polly Mellon, and then I, re- I really understood, like mm-hmm. I really got it. I was like out of school at the moment this kind of person starts appearing and I was understanding.
0: That's crazy. Mm. And then quite quickly, because you, like we said, we launched in uh, 97, and then by 2002, Rochas came knocking at your door what made you decide to take that on? And then at that point you kind of decided to put all your energy into that and close your namesake brand and to focus on that. And it was also so different. I, I'll never forget that first show you did. I mean, it was just the, the shape, the, the hump on the back, let's say it was more, it's more elegant than that, but I don't know how to explain it otherwise. And, and you close your own and you open the Wachasse and your own brand was very dark colors, very goth that people had described it at the time. And this was just so different. It was so Feminine in its own way, very, you know, very romantic and very different shapes and proportions. How did you make that switch?
1: I actually closed my business back then after spring summer 2002, which I produced and shipped to stores. Uh, But spring summer 2002 was just after the Twin Towers.
0: Yeah.
1: And there was like such a situation, and I wanted to work in Paris and I wanted to work in a situation where I was fantasizing about being a designer with a team, not being just on my own with like two person helping me. And I was more like imagining like, oh, that must be amazing to work in a house in Couture and Paris. And so I decided to, to stop my business after like, we must be like the middle of 2002. And by chance I got A proposition for some for a small moment I was kind of like really jobless Mm -hmm. I was like wondering what am I gonna do it was very stressful and I also wanted to keep working with some of the people I like to work with and then I mean I had a boyfriend in Berlin and once I was spending some time there and I got a phone call from Rochas and I actually didn't really know what it was as a brand it wasn't a brand that was out there, fashion was; it had stopped since the 50s, it's fashion. And then I found out my mother had been uh, wearing a perfume from Rochas, And I had a friend in Paris who had a small book of, on the brand because obviously no internet, you could not make any research. And by watching this small book, there was a lot about lace. I just have a book, of Roche, like that's the lace of Rochas. Oh yeah. So, and I even have like the old book, like that was the book that he had shown me. So it's like an 80s book. It's uh, Everything is black and white, you yep. see. So that's maybe from it, like there was 10 pictures that I liked it in the whole book and that was enough. I was like, there are like little birds here, like blacklist, chantilly, my favorite. So that's probably what I should do.
0: And so ha- tell me a little bit about how, the, what it was like for you, because you had, you know, the, your time at Horshast, you were creating new silhouettes. Everyone was talking about you. You did that in from till 2006 and then you, and then they just kind of, at the same point that you're getting the awards for like the CFDA International Des, you know, Designer Award, the Rochas decides to close its fashion department at that same time. Was that like a, like a slap to the face? What? How did you react to that? I mean, was it, were you already like seeing the writing on the wall? What was that experience like?
1: Well, the story is longer. Um, it's funny because it's a whole, like that makes me think of someone, that makes me think of Sally Singer because when I was closing, the Tascans house, the small Tescans house, I did a draw a collection in case I would continue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Sally was working on an article and she came to, to Brussels to visit me. And so she was aware of the collection I was doing for myself. And I was working a lot about the 50s in a bizarre way for Tascans, mm-hmm. in a very rock and roll way, more like rockabilly sort of way and like destroyed new look sort of way. And I should do do my my thing. I go to Paris and I start being involved on Russia's and then sort of like Sally came back on on following up with what I was doing. And uh, I was completely stuck in the fifties, like imagining Reshaping and uh, reapproaching all of that in a, in a in a more couturier gesture. It's very funny. So I had signed maybe six months, and I had already done maybe my first show. Mm-hmm. And then I was having like a tea with Sally, and she announced me, "Have you seen that Procter and Gamble just bought the group uh, uh, that owns Rochas? Because mm-hmm. Rochas was part." of a group, a European group, a smaller group of perfumes. They had Gucci, uh, several nice perfumes, mm-hmm. and they got bought by Proter and Gamble. And I was like, whoa, that's great. It's going to be better, bigger. Yeah, more
0: funds, yeah.
1: Yeah, nice. And in the end, I mean, it was a long process because almost even more than a year before we were discussing about the problematics that Procter Gamble was facing because they had no interest in fashion. They had no one was really taking care of any fashion brand there because they had any. Mm-hmm. They were very, very big, very specialty of perfumes or chemicals or these things. And they had no one to any make even like a management decision mm-hmm. on what they were doing. So they couldn't continue it. Mm-hmm. So for a while, I was hoping we would find a solution, eventually sell the brand, or do something. I, I tried to do. I, I see. No, it's like so far back, like we yeah. talked about something 15 years ago. I have no problem to talk about it anymore. But at the time, I was, I was. It was a big style, and I was really careful to not talk about it because it was too tricky. I, I was really hoping that someone would take the brand, or but I eventually we could continue. And then also the other part of was like. Maybe it's better I don't continue. Mm-hmm. We were still at that time used to see designers staying like 20 years in exactly. house. So I was already like the fourth year. And uh, one person who was working as a general director at Rochas at some point but left uh, called me back uh, and I was still at Rochas, and he was now at Ritchie. And he was like, well, we would like to hire you. And so I was like, okay, if Rochas stops, I come. So I came. All right, so it was- We did a, we did a resort for Rochas in July. Then we had like August month and September was at Ricci, And wow. there were 14 employees from Rochas who were drift from Rochas to Ricci. So it was incredible for me. I could keep my team and they could com- accompany me there.
0: Another perfume focused label. Now, what is that like for you to go go so dramatically from one to another label? Again, a house where there isn't a really clear definition history for what Rojas represents, the same thing that you had with Nina Ricci. And, and how do you switch gears so quickly like that and, and come up with a new idea or a new aesthetic? Or were, were you just like I'm me and I'm gonna and now we're just gonna call it, you know, this?
1: I think it's natural for me. Like I I I can do it. Um, I I sometimes I compare this to the People can be actors. Mm-hmm. They can go from one way of playing to another way, and they're still themselves, but somehow they can play different characters. And I, I, I am. I want to be very honest with my design, and especially when I work for another brand, I want to create designs that are relevant for that brand. Mm-hmm. So when you start with this mindset, you can approach any potential brand and imagine authentically what would be right for them, what would be exciting for them. Mm-hmm. And I also in the same way, I quickly know if something would inspire me or not. It depends on the richness of the heritage or or if there is something that I think is like a strong element that I can creatively really develop on. Mm-hmm. And people marketing-wise, they speak about the DNA. It's a bit of a horrible way, but essentially it's kind of true Mm -hmm. brands they have a dna they have like a a a world that sort of like works with them and you can enter that world and and being yourself you can really develop things for them that are different
0: what so okay so then you're three years there and then, and they, then that again implodes to a certain extent, and they decide not to continue. It's like a coup contre coup, as they say in French. You know, um, a bit of a whiplash there. And then I know we talked about this before, um, and just in that like, conversation. But then you took off and traveled, right? And that was that was, I think, a real you know eye opening like for over a year. What was that like for you?
1: Well, for me, like, I was honestly, I, I, I never really understood how it actually. I mean when i was at richie it was a bit delicate because we changed general management uh the last year i was there and somehow i sometimes think like it happens a lot in brands like when the boss change they decide to change what they think is relevant for change and so they change a designer myself but i also wanted to explore the 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 possibility to relaunch my brand Mm -hmm. and uh and maybe it's because it was more, you know, the environment of that time. I was sort of like surprised by what my girlfriends were able to buy with a very good budget. Kind of like clothes, hundred percent silk here, and like with details there, and like also they would go in a more mass, a more accessible mass market brand. They could find something nice, mm-hmm. um, and I was like surprised because I had experienced before that if I would do just a simple shirt, five buttons, one pocket, it would already cost 500 euros in store and whatever the price of the fabric a cheap polyester, it would be so expensive. And I wasn't understanding why, so I wanted to understand that better and I was interested to do something more accessible and a, a person in the, in the United States told me that I should maybe discuss with Andrew Rosen who was the boss of theory, just to speak about it, speak about what I wanted to do, that maybe he would have some advice for me. Mm-hmm. And when we met, we sort of like, sort of like worked. And he, and he later told me that eventually, maybe why not do something together first? Like, but I could bring a bit of my creative energy, in his teams and start working together and it sort of organically became like a more like a joint venture so like an entrepreneurial project but a joint venture with the two brands and so that's was, how we was, started in theory
0: so this was so you moving from this area then you, you know you move from nina Richie and rochas um you take a little time off and then you start exploring more of this global world of fashion in the sense with with theory. So where there are stores in every corner of the world to learn more of that aspect of the business. Was that what was interesting to you?
1: It was very interesting. I also think that it was the, let's say the golden age of the mid market. Mm -hmm. I think 2011 to 2015 was particularly special Mm -hmm. for the mid market sector. I don't think that today is the same. Mm-hmm. but I think at the time it was like the beginning for me where brands that were more accessible was kind of like were attempting to be more stylish or more fashionable. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them were like doing a lot of copycats from what was happening in high fashion mm-hmm. but some others were trying to be authentic while bringing novelty mm-hmm. and uh it was very interesting for me because it was also bringing novelty in the way people dress, in the li- like being aware of their lifestyle. And uh, you know, it was, uh, we were our offices were just about, above our store and it was very interesting for me, like I could really see how it works. But the typologies and everything were also another part that interested me because it was a more generic cloth and I, I wanted to do also something more simple by the time.
0: Yes, because before it was quite elaborate and, and quite, you know, there was. I mean, you've you've always right. been the the best designers and and tailors that I, I that I've ever seen. So. You know, very you know intricate pieces to be able to kind of streamline that to something more mass that people, more people can enjoy your work. And then, yeah. and then, then that period ended, and then you decided to come back and start your own brand again, relaunch your signature label. What was that? Just like a no-brainer. Like, okay, I've done theory, I've done mass, I've done you know these these couture houses, you know, fashion central in Paris. I want to go back to my roots. What was the Process there, or did you just say, I want to take step back and break? What made you decide to relaunch your brand?
1: Well, it was something that I always had wanted to do. And I was always thinking that if I would be like for a long lapse of time on one spot, I would end doing this at the same time than the other one. And I never had like an exclusive contracts, I was always free to do it. Mm-hmm. I never had done it because I felt oh, I need to be organized here before, or I need, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I was also thinking like, I should really focus on launching my own, uh, my own brand and maybe it's better I do it before I turn 40. Like I, I was thinking like I should like target a goal and have it done before I turn 40. Mm-hmm. So it was allowing me to have like one sabbatical year to think about it. And then uh, like uh, in January 16, I start working on it. Mm-hmm. I went back to Italy where I had been working for my own brand in the 90s and early 2000s. I went back to Italy. I visit again all the factories. Some of them I was working with them before, and like sort of like starting to talk about this project and seeing how I can organize it, how I would structure it, which was not an easy an easy task. And uh and so I took a bit of a time for doing it. And I did the first show for Tescans in September 16. I remember after. like I remember. that was like the time of a pregnancy <laughs> to come with yes. it.
0: <laughs> what um what was it like for you then? Did it feel like, you know, you know, riding the bike again—was there? No, was it just like going back uh, to to your to your roots? What, did it feel very different to start the company again? Was it? Did it feel very organic? Uh,
1: yeah, n- not really. Back to my roots, not totally. I think you change. I, I don't like to to be too much like passeiste or something. The bizarre thing is that very quickly after I launched, I got approached by a museum, fashion museum, to do a retrospective. Yeah. Um, and so I was forced to look back to everything I did and I had to rearrange all my archives and I had all these boxes with my old clothes and I was like reseeing them. Uh, even working on the exhibition, I had to put them back on the mannequins and it was like envisioning again the girl wearing it. It was very bizarre, but I, I was forced to look back. And obviously I have my own ways when it comes to my brand in terms of design and some of the things that I don't want to do, some of the things I'm going to look for. I I always have a tendency to to try to go forward and not repeat, but keep some of my classics really rearranged. It's it definitely is my way, but I don't know. It was not, it, it was like a natural process. I just am a creative person, and when it comes to my brand, I just think of what I want to see on the girls right now for with my label on it.
0: Well, then let's talk a little bit about that because you're continuing your label, and now you're also moving into the world of couture to a certain extent. Stint with Azaro, what made you decide? Okay, I'm going to do two brands, and oh, by the way, one of them is going to be couture and mixed with ready to wear. But what made you go like, yeah, okay, I can, I'm going to do this. I can do this.
1: Well, I needed some some time for with my brand before like spreading, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's three years now that I, I I have launched, and I have been very very busy uh, throughout these three years because mostly I've been busy to organize and bring the right scale to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's, a, it, it's done in a total autonomy, totally independently. And I'm really targeting like the best partners in the field for manufacturing, uh, all the service I can do. And it's, we're a very small company, but somehow after this, these three years, I think we found a form of organization that is suitable to allow me to spend more time also on the site and do another creative job. And the particularity with Vazaro is that although it's a very inspiring brand because its heritage is very specific and very rich to the 70s mostly and a bit of the 80s, it's very interesting uh, heritage. It also has a particularity to show its collection in during the Couture Week. Mm-hmm. It's a house that is invited to show its collection of ready-to-wear and couture. Uh, during the the Haute Couture week. So it's a very interesting thing for me because it's not the same time as the the moment I do my own presentations. And it's a men and women, which is also something I wanted to be involved on menswear again. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it's another facet that I haven't been able to explore because the world of Azaro has something more sensual, sultry, It's, it's another era, but I have never really been able to sort of like get in Mm-hmm. but in the same time I'm born in the 70s it's something that is like I can find roots of that I can I can link it to the way I saw the women dressed uh, on TV or people I was seeing around me in my family I can I can totally relate to that era
0: well yeah I mean if that's true that's interesting that you mentioned that because there there are a lot of descriptives for your designs but that central sexy thing that's that's not really what d- is the omnibus the aesthetic really so it'd be so is this like working a new muscle i know you said you like to look at the history of a brand and see how you could you know put on that you know new role as you say like an actor so that was what inspired you that besides the timing but also this idea of, of trying a new muscle creative muscle that you haven't ever touched before
1: well i i in the same time, I'm, I think that the girls wearing my things at Tascans feel sexy. Yes, yes. Because yeah. I, they say that a lot. They say I, they feel really, really sexy, but they don't feel vulgar. Mm-hmm. They don't That's feel good. vulgar and they don't feel tacky, It's say. So I think I like to to have uh, the girls sexy. It's more like a connection with sort of like, I for my old brand, I also have this more, there's a more arty to something different, it's, uh, it's less about the pleasure, it's different, it's, uh, and that's something that I'm gonna work and articulate. It's gonna be, uh, for me, it, it is, as long as I cannot, like, start the story and showing the collections, people cannot really get it through words.
0: Well, that's true, that's true. Um, what are you going to, what are you gonna do in relationship to the, the collection? Because considering that there will be any shows, in you know, no couture, no Where Are you still planning on presenting something in some way going forward in June, or are we putting a pin in things for now?
1: Well, I think that uh, what's important is to have the capacity to adapt quickly, um, mm-hmm. because who knows what's the state of mind we're gonna have in two months. What is for sure is I think it's good to not be inactive, so I like to keep myself busy. There there is like uh, enough measures in France to allow companies to have people on we say chômage partiel which is like they get like on a more resting position mm-hmm. but they still can be involved and uh, so and I myself like to keep designing or drawing sketching. The thing also is that I mean we are in Paris. So the minute people get back to work, they go fast, these guys, they go fast. <laughs> so we see, <laughs> what it's, like, maybe, it. it's still a question mark. I think it's yeah. a question mark. What I think is that we are all gonna be open minded to, you know, how people are gonna do things, the scale of what they do, mm-hmm. the um, tempo. of Like we're gonna be very open-minded and very permissive. Mm-hmm. Um, but still people that are passionate are gonna work at doing things the best they can.
0: Always, always, always. What has it been like for you? I know your pieces when you're earlier, you know, your stuff is very couture in nature anyways, as it is, but has working for a couture house or doing couture pieces, does it feel anything different at all? Are you learning anything with with, the, with what you're doing with the Zaro or, or are you bringing more to the table? What do you
1: say? What I think I'm learning is that I can unfold something else from me. That's definitely that's always a good learning. That's why that's that's probably the actor thing that is like excites people who are working in the city in, as actors. is like doing a new role. They get like discovering things about themselves probably. But for me, um, what was the question again? <laughs>
0: No, I mean, because I was the question was you talk about couture,
1: you know, your pieces are. Oh yeah, couture. yeah, no, I, do, I think it's it's going to be interesting to work closely with the atelier. Uh, there is an atelier in the house, which is very exciting. Obviously, the people there have more experience, life experience, so they are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we take care of them a lot. So I don't know when I'm gonna actually be able to sit next to them and work with them. When it comes to working with the, the embroiderers and all these you know, like people connected with couture, I've, I've, I have the experiments. I've been working on special pieces and I've been able to enjoy working with them. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of know a little bit of people how they work in that field Mm -hmm. I never thought that I could because I am too ready to wear I would not be able to touch couture I always think that it's it's just it's it's very simple to touch couture you just do a couture piece uh, whatever it's like when Mm you want to do it so i've never felt like i'm gonna have to wait until i'm like getting like a haute couture job to learn about it like i've always been focused on that Mm -hmm. but it's exciting to know that actually we have a reason to do couture pieces but the thing to know also is that i think it's interesting and especially with me involved is that the collection we show is ready to wear with a bit of couture Mm -hmm. which is something but I always naturally did for myself too. I always did like from simple pieces to extravagant pieces. I've always felt there is not really a borderline. There is like a it's more like uh something fluid.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. That that I mean it actually seems very much in organic in keeping with with the style that you have pulled through your entire career, this mixing of mm. of very unique pieces and pieces that are much much more wearable. I, I think that your career is yeah. for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Olivia, it's time for the five generic fashion questions. What okay. is your favorite piece of clothing that you own?
1: That I own? Yeah, yours. No, I like some of the Helmut long pieces I bought when I was like still at school. Ah. Because that was the thing, like these guys, like Anne de Lang, Helmut Long, they were doing clothes that are expensive, but affordable for students. It wasn't, it wasn't a pure luxury. It was like something you could get some of these if you were like brave enough to work on the side of school.
0: Which piece for, for women or men, you know, uh, not everybody can afford something, you know, from a designer brand or something like that. But if there was one garment that you think that a woman or a man should really invest in, what would you?
1: say that is cashmere anything <laughs> cashmere i could i sincerely i don't i mean invest now cashmere can be like so cheap but actually it's still invest, an investment it's still a quality qualitative f- fiber it's just that for me it's the nicest to have on yourself and a I nice cashmere agree. always the best like, nothing worse but sort of like, even like a luxurious sweater in like wool and polyester, like you sweat in it, it's a horrible thing.
0: I absolutely agree. Cashmere 100% all the way, nothing else. Who is your favorite designer, living or dead?
1: Um, it's a hybrid between Vionnet, Valenciaga, all of these all of his, all of his f- founders. Mm-hmm. get worst. Oh
0: yeah, Just
1: absolutely. I don't know, Saint Laurent, Chanel. I cannot, like, that. I all love them so much because that, there is some clarity between them. Uh, obviously, in the 50s, some of them start being like, you know, the Jacques Fat. There are many very talented, but they were like collapsing together mm-hmm. at making a similar style. But uh, the founders for me are the key ones, you know, that okay. I love.
0: What about, all right, my next, my second to last question is, what trend will you never follow?
1: I think it's, uh, the difficulty with me is that even when I try to follow a trend, I don't, I get, I get out of it. Like okay? I, so it's very, very tricky, but um, it, it's bizarre because for, it's three years now, but I'm like focused on natural fibers. I'm not doing synthetic stuff. Like, and three years ago, it was like, it looked like a decision that was counter business. And I think that today it's definitely better to focus on the beautiful fibers and stop with this dirty <laughs> polluting thing. You know what I mean. Absolutely. It's strange. And so these trends of nylon thing, and I mean, the sport is great. Sport clothes are amazing. It's modernity. There is a lot of research and all of that, but luxury that starts selling in a high cost, like a deep, dirty nylon. I just think it's a ridiculous thing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But that's, that although I like that real, I mean, obviously there must be uh, amazing nylon things that come the garçon. Uh, but it's just that as a trend, mm-hmm. that's why I, I start being, like I start being very nervous when everybody start making fake fur, because fake fur is a highly polluting item. It's terribly, poli- terribly polluting. And uh, I, I couldn't hear that thing about the fake fur. Like, sorry.
0: I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think that the world of fashion, at least I hope, will move more in the direction of, you know, sustainability and, and you know, quality fibers, things that last longer than one season. I, I hope that that's the way we move forward. One last question. What do you love most about fashion?
1: I mean, the beauty, the, the, research the research for beauty. And like, it's uh, for, for people who don't know a thing about fashion, they, they don't understand. They just think it's like nuts and crazy. But it's the same for people who don't really take care of, ni- of nice food, of mm-hmm. eating nicely. Like, it's the experience. Fashion is something to experience, of course, and but at the same time, it's also to be able. It's also good to 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 be able to live without it. Like I'm very happy without it too. But what I like is to project an idea of a research about beauty, a research of aesthetic. There is a lot of very nice virtues and qualities. Uh, and for me, the thing is that it's one of the things I I don't have to really much question because it's like. It was a natural thing I had. I I directly have been obsessed with it. And because of what? Because I thought women were beautiful. So that's why I got very like, I think that the, the contemplation, the admiration, the obsession of, of that is one of the biggest pleasure I have since a child. Then okay. that's maybe why it's natural to me. That's what I like.
0: That's amazing that you're able to, to have this dream of childhood become such a reality and that you're living your dream life to a certain extent. That's wonderful.
1: Yeah, but you can, it's, it's so natural that you don't think about it anymore. Like I, I the pleasure is, a, is, is disguised. It's mm-hmm. very buried deep within because uh, people who see me every day, they cannot really read how happy I am about doing that. I'm just focused and I'm serious about doing it. But I, if I really stop and I know that it's because it's about, it's an expression of beauty that I'm like seriously trying to figure. And, um, and it's not like, I'm not on, on my, in my behavior, I'm not like,
0: oh, I'm happy.
1: Like, it's like, no, I'm like serious.
0: <laughs> happy on the inside of you. Happy on the inside thank you so so much this was such a pleasure thank you thank you thank you
1: my pleasure jessica
0: good kiss
1: bye bye bye
0: don't want to miss an episode of fashion your seatbelt no problem just go to itunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically no fuss no muss believe me i know i'm jessica michaud